This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he's the guy who just hit me for 39 damage. It's Matt Morgan. You know, Joey, in spite of all of our disagreements about EDH Rec, I'm glad about one thing, and it's that we always end up back on the same page. Web page, that is. I, I gotcha. Well, I'm surprised to hear that, Matt. It, uh, are you referring to a, a graveyard theme page, perchance? No, I, I'm going to move us along to the same page as far as like good commanders, good themes, uh, nothing oh. that uses the color black, not a lot of blue. <laughs> Oh, savage green. I I feel like I'm going to need to move to a different web page after all. Anyway, up next, he's the guy who just dealt the final one damage to me so that he can take credit for the KO. That's Dana Roach. That's exactly what I would do. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Um, You know, it's been kind of a rough year for Magic thanks to COVID. We've had all kinds of events canceled and things we've missed out on. But I think probably the most tragic loss was the fact that I didn't get to play in a pre-release this week despite opening three Lotus Cobras in my pre-release kit. Um, So that was definitely, I think the community as a whole probably felt that one. I, that... uh I'm not sure that I would call that the most tragic loss, but man, I mean, it's one of the top, top three then. Well, definitely top three. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, but man, I'm just imagining playing one land and then that becoming like a ritual. You get three mana from that. That sounds really would nasty, have been, Would have been amazing. I, See, I Joey, that, that's why you play much. green decks, Joey, because you get to do those kinds of things. But I want more graveyard. Anyway, we're getting off to a very strange start. How about we actually get this show started? This is the EDH Rec cast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all that data just a little more context. Fellas, what is it that we're talking about this week? We're going to talk about cards that scale with the amount of players in a game. Indeed. We want to take a pretty good look at the uh, the cards that might scale poorly to having multiple opponents, cards that scale well, and maybe cards that take advantage of the fact that you have an increased size of the game. So it should be a whole lot of fun. But before we get to our main topic, we have to give a huge thank you to Josh Lequai and the entire team at the Command Zone. They do all of the post-production work on the podcast, making it look and sound as awesome as it does. So thank you to the entire team. And of course, thank you to our sponsors for the show as well. We'd absolutely like to thank our sponsors, Card Kingdom and TCG player. Card Kingdom has an amazing buy list if you have cards you're no longer using, and they have an impeccable inventory containing almost any card you'd want for your deck. TCG player has thousands of individual sellers and a deep selection of cards as well. And if you just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question, you can follow the link to the site of your preference, and doing so supports both the podcast and the website. Or if you would prefer to support the podcast directly, you can do that as well. Head over to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast and join at any of our patron tiers. You have a tier for joining the Discord, and that's just a great community that we've been building. Really happy with how that's been turning out. Or if you want to submit a challenge of stats pick, we have a tier for that. We feature one pick 
every week. So whatever you'd like to do at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast, you can support us directly. We love all of our patrons. We appreciate all the support. And actually, there's a tier where we're going to plug somebody who just happens to be a patron every week. Joey, who is that patron that we're going to EDH recognize this time? We are EDH recognizing Matthew Watson. Shout out to you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We really, really appreciate all the support. Yes, thank you, Matthew. It's awesome to have you around. Yeah, all of our patrons, they're awesome. They're, they're coming in like a like an EDH wrecking ball. That joke was terrible. I should leave all of the dad jokes to Matt. I EDH anyway, recognize what you tried to do, though. I I, I feel like I've uh, signed my, my death note here. Um, <laughs> that was probably a bad joke that might come around to bite me throughout the duration of this episode. My apologies. Uh, it wouldn't everyone. be the first time, Joe. Let's just slide away into the rest of the show notes. Let's do that. Let's move on. Let's get to our main topic. We're talking about cards that scale, especially ones that scale in power uh, up to the level, the increased size of the game, the more opponents that you have. Um, Before we get started with that, though, I feel like it would be a good pit stop to sort of acknowledge, like, I don't know, I've got this cute little acronym that I like to use whenever I am trying to figure out which cards I want to use in Commander. And that is the acronym USE, the cards to use. And that stands for cards that are universal cards that scale, and cards that provide you with endurance. And so this particular episode, we're going to be talking about scale, but I want to quickly just briefly go over those because I feel like it's a really nice way to help evaluate the cards that you are using in your deck. So let's start, for example, with universal, just meaning a card that is good in nearly all situations because commander is such a high variance game. So having a universal card that can help you get out of sticky spots in many different types of games against like an enchantress player or an artifact player, that kind of thing, cards that are universal are going to be really, really uh, really, really helpful for there. That's, that's, for example, why we like Chaos Warp, but not like cards that just say destroy target artifact. Like Chaos Warp helps you get out of a lot more situations. That is a more universal card. Uh, but then there's also Scale. Yeah, Scale um, are cards that match up to the increased size of the game. A lot of cards are built for one-on-one 20 life formats, but there's a lot more life in Commander and there's almost always more players. Uh, that's why some aggro decks struggle because the amount of damage they may do is enough to take mm-hmm. down one person in a 20 life format, but it's much more difficult to take down three players in a 40 life format. Absolutely. And the final one is Endurance. These are going to be cards that help you kind of get to that end game. You know, commander games, like we said, there's more life, there are more players. So they're typically going to take a little bit longer to actually go through and play the entire game out. So we kind of prioritize on cards that sustain us over those longer games. Uh, Ramp and card draw are two really good examples of this. Just anything that helps propel you to the, you know, the bigger things that you want to be doing in the commander format. You might remember a episode that we did a while back about powerful engine cards. These would definitely fall into the endurance category. And we're going to talk about scale. That's one thing that we're just going to talk on this specific episode, but it's something that we do want to explore a little more. So look forward to, you know, possible episodes in the future talking about these other two categories that aren't the scale that we're going to talk about specifically today. Yeah, we're, we're starting in the middle for for no reason, but the scale is what we really want to focus on. Yeah, we're going to start in the middle because like Star Wars, we start where we want to, we'll finish where we want to. Nothing, the order doesn't really matter. There you go. And also it's important to recognize, even though we're talking about scale in this episode, like you really do need cards in all three of these sections, but different deck archetypes will really prize some of these categories more than others. Like universal cards are really great, but sometimes what you actually want is a silver bullet card that is actually very pointed and fixed to take down one person's particular strategy. Case in point, these guys love to play graveyard hate like Madruka Bog and Relic of Progenitus against me, which isn't a very universal effect, but it really messes with my day a whole lot. And you guys enjoy it way too much. It's universal against Joey, though. No matter what deck you're running, (laughs) universally it works. Sure. But then also like a control deck is really going to focus on the cards that provide a lot of endurance because they plan on, you know, out-resourcing their opponents over a long game. Whereas an aggro deck really will probably want to focus on scale uh, instead of endurance cards. It doesn't need stuff to project into the long game. It wants to do a whole lot of damage, but it doesn't want to do a lot of damage to just one opponent. It wants cards that are going to deal a lot of damage to each opponent or some such thing. So let's go through a couple of the different categories of types of cards that we see as they fit into scale. There are four different sort of sections that we want to apply here. And the first one we're going to address is just the cards that scale pretty poorly to the fact that this is a multiplayer environment. Matt, what are some examples of this? 
So a lot of these are just gonna be single target spells. Uh, counter spells fall into this, uh, but removal especially, you have stuff like go for the throat, oblivion ring, anything that only hits one specific target typically isn't where you want to be. Now there are exceptions that you know, you're always gonna have a little bit of removal, but those are gonna be those universal removal cards. But you also have three opponents. Uh, so this isn't really a one-on-one -on -one format where it's an even trade. You know, you have one card for, you know, an opponent's one card. Dane and I exchange a counter spell for a different spell, but that means the two other players at the table, they're unaffected. So yes, it, it, it hurts one person, but that also leaves two people that haven't been affected by that spell you just cast. So the scale of those specific single target spells aren't really great. You, it, there's kind of a necessary evil, but mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, the, the other categories might cover up a little bit better, like we talked about. They might be universally good. You know, you have to take out Dana's Adelise because it's going to go for lethal at you. But that's not what you want to build your deck around. That's not what you want to have your deck full of. You want to have decks that are going to scale a little bit better than anything kind of like those one-for-one -one types of spells. Well, and I would say it's actually even worse than just putting yourself and one other person down a card, you've also expended some amount of mana, and so has your opponent mm -hmm. who played the, the spell that you've then removed. And you've also used time. You've also used a chunk of your turn, or they've used a chunk of their turn to play the thing that you've removed, which again, in a 1v1 format, you've both expended resources and in, in, in those environments, it's much more about who used more. If I use, you know, two mana on a removal spell to remove a four mana thing, you're ahead. That math isn't the same here where the other two people are sitting there not down a card, not having wasted time, and not having spent mana. So it, yeah. it, it's actually even more impactful, I think, than, than just saying you spent a card. It's, it's a, quite a big deal to have to make that 1v1 exchange. And I yeah. think that's kind of why it's so important for your your one for one types of removal spells to be so efficient. I think that's why Swords to Plowshares is so popular in this format because it is yes, it's it's a one for one type of card, but at least it's it's very very efficient in what it does. Mm -hmm. And that's kind right. of why cards like Swords to Plowshares are so popular because even though it doesn't scale very well, it at least is being efficient and managing other resources. Yeah, and an important thing about cards that we've discussed, like Swords to Plowshares, like you mentioned, like those cards are actually, they get a lot better as the game whittles down to a one-on-one. -on -one. So over time, they are going to get a bit more efficient, but it is still, like, if I use one removal spell on Dana's creature, and then I use another removal spell on something that Matt plays, and then I play another removal spell on our third opponent, I'm down three cards, and each of you is only down one. And that is a method of card disadvantage that won't be very sustainable. So these are cards that are, if efficient, but still skill poorly. And so you'll probably want to make up for their efficiency in one of those other categories, like endurance or like universal, uh, universality, universal, uh, Joey can't speak. He's going to move on now because what is more interesting is when you start applying that to our next section, the cards that scale more evenly instead of the cards that scale poorly. Let's talk about some of the cards that are actually a bit nicer to play. They, they, they still, they adjust better to having more opponents. The main example, that I kind of want to get to. Matt, you mentioned Oblivion Ring earlier, I think. A good yes. contrast to that would be Grasp of Fate. Oblivion Ring temporarily exiles one permanent from one opponent, but Grasp of Fate hits one permanent for each opponent. That would still be good against a single opponent, but it is way better against three because it's hitting everyone at an equal rate. Yeah, you could also make the comparison of a Disenchant. It's just a one-for-one -one type of spell to Dismantling Wave, where you get mm -hmm. one of those Disenchant-type targets, but you get one for every opponent that's on the battlefield. Uh, that's another type of, you know, strict upgrade almost, not strict upgrade, but it does a lot better at scaling than the disenchant types of spell would. But you talked about, Joey, aggro, and I do love aggro decks. Um, <laughs> ways that aggro decks get to scale, I mean, Perforos is one of those extremely yeah. powerful you know, engines out there that scales very well. You know, it's going to do two damage to each opponent. No matter who's out there, they're taking two damage whenever a creature comes in the battlefield. Uh, it's just a crazy powerful card. Uh, Chandra's Ignition is also another card that kind of falls into this category of it doesn't matter how many other opponents are out there, but they're all taking damage. Now, the, the one note I will make here, I think that's worth at least considering is, you know, in a 1v1 format, when you remove something that belonged to the opponent, 
they don't dislike you any more than had you removed two or three things. The goal is to beat that one person and all your guns are trained on them. In a mm. multiplayer format, that's a little bit different. And, and once you start hitting everyone repeatedly, then they all very much want to turn on you versus each other. So you do <laughs> sure. generate a little bit more threat. And you also have the added problem, you know, you mentioned Grasp of Fate. Grasp of Fate now creates a situation where if you Oblivion Ring one really strong permanent, then you have one person looking to remove an Oblivion Ring to get their thing back. When you Grasp of Fate three really strong permanents, you have three people looking to remove that grasp of fate. Now there's there's a lot of push and pull there. Is it worth getting your thing back to let some other thing get free? Who knows? But the, mm-hmm. the math is very, very different on those kind of things than it is in 1v1 format too. And that should at least be recognized and considered to a degree. Yeah, I can totally get behind that. It is a lot harder to politic when you are doing the same amount of damage exactly. to everyone. But at the same time, I still find myself way more drawn to uh, commanders, for example, that deal damage to each opponent as opposed to target opponent. A comparison that comes to mind is Halar the Fire Fletcher, yep. who deals damage to each opponent uh, equal to the number of plus one counters on them um, whenever you cast a kicked spell, which is a lot more powerful than I gave it credit for. Uh, I've played a couple of games against Halar and I'm like, ooh, I'm really impressed. You put like 10 plus one counters on, on this thing and oh my goodness, I'm, it's a lot of damage. But I compare that to the card like Ishkana, for example, which is a spider tribal commander and plenty of fun with a spider tribal. It's a really fun themed deck, but it's activated ability there only says the target opponent loses life as opposed to each opponent losing life. And that makes it a little bit less appealing because I'd rather take you all down at the same time, personally. Like it just is more efficient if I make all <laughs> of you lose life there. Um, and a bunch of other examples come to mind too. Like if Psychosis Crawler said, whenever you draw a card, target opponent loses life instead of each opponent loses life, it would be a substantially less interesting card that I wouldn't want to play in a wheel deck as eagerly as I do now, for example. Or like Torment of Hailfire. I mean, good night. That thing is insane because of the equal amount of damage that it does to all of the board. Well, and another kind of build upon from the last category, we said that one for one removal spells didn't really scale that well. This is where board wipes, you know, Wrath of God, Day of Mm. Judgment, those kind of destroy all creature effects or all types of permanence, those cards do scale very well because it blows up the entire battlefield. It's getting permanence usually from all three players. So those are the types of cards, just as when it comes to removal, that do scale very well. Uh, Cyclonic Rift, for example, is kind of a, an upgrade to River's Rebuke, which you know they mm. are bouncing a lot of permanence. But Cyclonic Rift is only getting theirs, and that's kind of why Cyclonic Rift is the powerhouse that it is well, in the format. Well, not not just that, but Rivers Rebuke is a target player bounces their stuff instead of Cyclonic Rift being each opponent yes. bounces their stuff. So there's way more applicability there. And, and, and what's important about this is that in this section, it still doesn't matter if you have three opponents or one opponent. These cards are going to hold the same amount of efficiency mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're down on the number of opponents or if you've got eight of them. Although for the record, don't play in a nine-player no. commander pod. That sounds like a <laughs> bit of a nightmare. But it, it is still a very even amount of distribution. The new card from Zendikar Rising, Maddening Cacophony, I compare that to Traumatize. Traumatize says target opponent mills half their library, and the new Maddening Cacophony says each opponent will mill half of their library. And that's just a way better scale situation for the mill decks, which is something that mill decks definitely need uh, to, to help up their game a little bit, because one of the issues that we talked about on our past mill episode was the fact that mill cards, they don't scale as well. And cards like this really help push them into a bit more of a, uh, they have them hold their own a whole lot better because the scale has increased to acknowledge the multiple opponents. And the balance here is usually things that destroy all of a thing usually don't just hit your opponents. They usually hit your stuff as well. So that's where the the, the kind of balance comes between the things that are that, that scale evenly and the things that scale poorly. Um, Schwartz to Plowshares, as we mentioned, scales poorly, but it lets you deal with that one problem that one time versus Wrath of God that scales fantastically, but also takes out your things. Now, there's definitely some cards like Cyclonic Rift or Ingaruk's Wake that, that leave your stuff alone, but there's, they're usually very mana intensive as well. Mm-hmm. So there is very much a balance there that would encourage you not to just run all one, all of one thing. Right. You, it would, you would think you'd want to run things that all scale evenly, but the game is kind of intuitively set up to make you not want to just do that. Right. But what I'll call sort of maybe an exception to this is our third section, which is really the one that I'm eager to get to talking about, y'all, because these are the cards that scale not evenly, 
but scale powerfully. These are the cards that are perfectly good against one enemy, but they get way way better when you have more enemies. And if you can't tell how eager I am to talk about cards that drain life from each of your opponents and then gain you that much life, such as <laughs> Grey Merchant of Asphodel and Kokosho and Exsanguinate, and this is why Joey loves to play the color black so much, like those cards are so dang good because I will drain three life from Dana and three life from Matt and three life from our third opponent and then I'll gain nine and it's great. As opposed to me, you know, you lose three and I gain three, I gain triple the amount of life. I've tripled the effect. That's so good. Cards that I want there to be more opponents so they get even more effective. These types of cards are so great and I love these. Well, and if you're not a necromancer like Joseph's (laughs) self, there are other cards, there are other colors out there that do scale really, really well as well. the reason that these scale so well is, you know, having more enemies, but they take it a step further because there's more chances to benefit from these. Mm-hmm. Roll your eyes all you want at Ristic Study and Mystic Remora, but they are very, very powerful because so many other players are casting so many other spells, which gives you more opportunities to proc the triggers to draw your own cards. Mm-hmm. They scale so very well, not just because of the players that are sitting in the seats, but because of what they're doing in the game. And that just gives you so many more opportunities to benefit from these cards. That's where I think this category really shines because there's so many actions going on. They, they tend to be effects that have a consistent payoff in, in the case of like Smothering Tithe or Consecrated Sphinx, for mm-hmm. example, where you are going to get that payoff from someone's draw step for the most part every single turn. But you also have the variable. You may get another payoff should somebody draw additional cards from a spell or an ability or something, and you're doubling or tripling that opportunity the more players are in the game to not only get your consistent payoff that you're always going to get, but to get that variable payoff that you're kind of rolling the dice on. And the more of those variable payoff attempts that are in the game, the better those spells get. Yeah, I, this is why everyone was so enamored with Smothering Tithe, and correctly so when the card was debuted, because it isn't just that it's a, a mana rock. It's a, a, it's not even like, oh, it's a powerful white card. No, it's a, a card that scales appropriately to the increased size of the game. And it really does feel like a lot of the designs that we get most of the time tend to be designed for for the more one-on-one formats. So when we get cards that shine in multiplayer, it just makes us so much more excited about them. Uh, thinking on the, the spell cast idea as well about like Ristic Studies and stuff like that, this is why I enjoy my Rayhan and Ishai deck so much, for example, because Ishai loves it when there are multiple people casting opponents because it gets a plus one counter every time an opponent casts a spell. And then I've stuffed that deck full of cards like Forgotten Ancient and Mana Gorger Hydra, which also love to have multiple opponents so that there can be more spells being cast and they just totally benefit from that. There's a ton of cards like that and they're all delicious. And it's worth noting also quite a few of these cards are ones that were designed prior to multiplayer being a commonly played thing. (laughs) Um, Ristic Study, when it was put together, was done so with the, the thought that you would have one opponent despite it being worded in a way that affects all opponents. Um, so, so this is definitely a category where weird old cards tend to shine because in multiplayer games, they oftentimes work in ways that no one really intended at that point in time when they, when they made the card. Well, and, and speaking of cards that I don't think were really designed with multiplayer in mind, Blasphemous Act, I don't think was really designed to accommodate for, for four players worth of creatures <laughs> out there compared sure. to just two. Uh, the the cost reducing factor on that I don't remember any time somebody's ca- you know, spent more than four mana probably casting a blasphemous act unless you're playing mm-hmm. against Craig Blanchett you just need to pay you know <laughs> nine mana for a one you know, kill one creature uh, that did happen that was a lot of fun <laughs> that was a lot of fun but yeah blasphemous act or even you know cards like fumigate where you get to gain more life depending on how many more creatures are in you know, on the battlefield, Phyrexian right. Rebirth, you make a huge token with four players worth of creatures compared to just two. Yeah, so this is what's so fascinating because we talked about board wipes earlier in the cards that scale evenly because, you know, Wrath of God, for example, is perfectly good against one opponent and it's really good against multiple opponents too. But then, Matt, you've been a longtime advocate of like five mana wraths like Fumigate, for example, because of the extra abilities, the extra benefits that they can put on top of that very even to go, like they go way far beyond beyond because they give you 
way more benefits beyond those. Like this is why I really like Decree of Pain, for example, because I'll draw mm. way more cards, even if it is really, really expensive. But more opponents means that that card is delicious. I also really like Azuri's Predation because there's more chance for me to get a bunch of creatures when there are more players to have creatures in the first place. And as much as Matt likes five cost board wipes, there are ones that are even more expensive, like the Decree of Pain that just got mentioned, or Bane of Progress, or Azuri's Predation. Um, you know, you don't want a deck filled with eight mana board wipes, but a lot of times in Commander, you can afford to run one of them if it draws you 14 cards like Decree of Pain, or if it, you know, drops a 12-12 body into play like Bane of Progress oftentimes does. So being able to um, spend a little more mana and get something with a ridiculously potent payoff is definitely worth it sometimes. Yeah, and, and speaking of there being more permanence, you know, around on the battlefield, like the card of Fairy Artisans from Commander 2016, I think this was kind of a sleeper hit, but this is a, a fairy creature that triggers every time an opponent gets a creature into play by making a copy of that creature. Like with more opponents, this is a way more appealing card because there are more chances for us to get ETB effects from our opponents playing really cool creatures like th this thing's super, super fun. But then that's also what makes a card like Authority of the Consoles so interesting. And, and in fact, just other Soul Sister effects, too, because they'll gain you life every time creatures enter the battlefield. Well, there are just more battlefields in general, so you have much higher chances of those getting life gain triggers, which makes them way, way more interesting in the commander format for sure. And sometimes you also get a cascading effect from these things when you have multiple players in play. You know, if you're playing against one person, there are situations where they can just not do a thing that might cause a trigger that would benefit you. Well, once one person breaks that cycle and just says, <laughs> well, I don't care what you're, you know, if you gain life off this or if you make tokens off that, I just need to play my stuff. Then that puts pressure on the third person and the fourth person who are now behind two other people. They're behind you, presumably, and they're behind the person that just took the bait and just did their thing anyway. So that then encourages them to also take the bait. So yeah, that, yeah that's it's a tough. bit of a... Yeah, there's a dominoes tipping over effect sometimes there. Yeah, kind of a staring contest when the risk right. study does come yeah. down and everyone's like, are you going to pay the one? They're not yeah. paying the one? All right, then I won't pay the one. But as soon as one person does, it's like the floodgates have opened. Um, you know, it, talking about having multiple players in, in the game and what it affects, it just gives you more people to steal stuff from. Um, you know, Stolen Strategy, Ardulian Primordial, um, Sepulchral Primordial, uh, anything that steals people's stuff, whether it's from their library or hand or in play or the graveyard, you know, sometimes people just aren't playing a lot of creatures. And if you're playing 1v1 and you're looking to steal creatures and they're not playing them, that you're, you're kind of out of luck. But I guarantee in a four-player game, one person's playing creatures. So it, it just gives you a lot more chances to not whiff um, worst case scenario. Best case scenario was everyone's playing stuff that you can steal. Sepulchral Primordial is probably just one of my favorite cards of all time for exactly this reason, because it isn't one creature, it's four creatures, which yeah. is awesome. Like, that's so good. I get to steal it. Like, there are more graveyards to steal from. How is that not the best thing ever? Matt, why don't you play more graveyards with me? These are the types of value engines we can provide you. Cards that scale so immeasurably well to having multiple opponents. It's it's so great. It's so good. So, so Joy, I'll let you play the Sepulchral Primord Primordial. I'll just play Insurrection, which is one of my favorite cards in this category because mm. it just lets me take four play, well, three players worth of creatures and then sure. attack them with it. So, you know, Dana, you know, with his Reki History of Kamigawa deck, he puts a thousand, you know, legendary creatures on the battlefield all of a sudden. Joey, you resurrect all your creatures all of a sudden. Um, Insurrection doesn't care. It's just going to take all of them and then I'm going to beat you down with them. Yeah. So Insurrection just scales because you have opportunities to get these massive board states that people have accrued. And instead of just getting rid of them, you get to use them for your own gain, which is extremely powerful. And, and not only that too, it's also you have more chances with multiple opponents for people to amass those board states because some, one mm -hmm. person might be on a Spellslinger deck that doesn't really assemble a whole lot. But then with three opponents, I have more more chances for one of them to be like Matt, who loves to put a bunch of creatures in play. So it, it is also a scale just in the opportunities for there to be an aggro deck for you to take advantage of in that way. So um, this is me trying to turn it back around on you, Matt, and uh, saying steal your creatures instead of mine. I get to steal from your graveyard, but please don't steal my battlefield. Uh, I'm, I'm going to steal whatever there is to steal. <laughs> well, so, you know, similarly, Rise of the Dark Realms. 
the more players you have on there, the more graveyards are out of steel. And it yeah. also pre- prevents that worst case scenario where someone gets their graveyard scavenger ground or, or bajuka bog or something. Well, there's still two other people that probably have juicy graveyards for you to steal stuff from in addition to your own. It's just that much easier to get a baseline of the card being really good with the potential to it being amazing, depending on what the table configuration is. But very rarely are you ever going to wind up with a dead card in hand because there's just so many, so many juicy targets available out there for you to hit. See, Dana, yeah. that just makes me want to... I don't know if I want to call you Hannah Montana or Miley Cyrus, because you're finding the best <laughs> of both worlds right there. Oh, no, that EDH wrecking ball quote from earlier, that's coming around to bite we me, right? It's come full circle. I, oh, wow. Okay, I was just bombarded with two of those jokes. No, okay. Oh, no, no, no. We need to be done. On the subject of big graveyards, though, like that's what makes me love the Card Lord of Extinction so much, for example. Like, it doesn't necessarily say anything on the text about, like, ooh, you know, each opponent does, no, but like, there are more graveyards, so this will get substantially bigger. Uh, and then cards like Malignus as well, that has more people to maintain a high life total for Malignus's ability to give it a high power and toughness ratio as well. Or, Dana, I specifically recall you playing a red deck that used mana geyser to extremely good effect because we all had a lot of tapped lands for that ritual to make you a lot of red mana yeah mana geyser is i should just challenge the stats on it frequently (laughs) because that's a really underplayed card but yeah mana geyser is amazing in multiplayer in a way that was clearly never intended but adore that card well another card that falls into this category just having more chances for stuff to be into play uh, Doxite Extortionist, that yeah. you get so many opportunities just because of the resources on the table that people are, you know, if you if somebody has Smothering Tithe, you oh, they have to get rid of all their <laughs> mana. Otherwise, yeah. Doxite Extortionist is going to give you such a massive mana advantage. It almost becomes like a, a mega-powered ritual at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Revel and Riches and Black mm-hmm. Market, things that, yeah. that, that give you mana and or treasure depending on your opponent's creatures dying. That's three times as many opponents and three times as many creatures that can die to to give you the counters and black market and to give you those treasures off revel and riches yeah see see that's 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 the kind of thing that i i like that i like that uh like it's great too because there are tons of commanders that i think especially take advantage of this particular um scaling type like the grismold the dread sower comes to my mind for example he's a commander that gives each uh, a player a 1-1 plant token at the end of each turn, and then when tokens die, he gets a lot bigger. Well, he'll give out more plant tokens if there are more players, so then that's just going to scale really, really naturally, as opposed to like when he's just up against a single opponent. Or Zyrus the Writhing Storm, that's a commander that gives you 1-1 tokens whenever your opponents draw extra cards. Well, with more opponents, there are more chances for them to draw extra cards, especially if you cast a Windfall. So that's what makes Zyrus so crazy potent compared to the output of like a Locust god for example both are really powerful but Zyrus is doing like three times more tokens with a single wheel spell and that's pretty intense so there's a lot of commanders that can help scale along too well i mean mangara the diplomat is a great one that we just got in mono white Mm. Uh, more opponents means they're going to be casting more spells which means more opportunities to get those card draw triggers or more people to be attacking you with like the the card draw advantage on mangara um definitely can't be tamed that's that's for sure (laughs) is that another joke that is another miley oh my goodness He's putting more of these. No. Okay. Uh, I, I still want to talk about these though. Like I, I think one of the reasons that Sir Conrad the Grim appeals to me so much, and I know that I can't go a single episode without referencing him, but uh, like he has more people to mill with his activated ability. So that is also a commander that kind of pseudo scales a little bit. There are more players to have creatures to die for his effect to trigger and then deal damage to every person. Um, Mazarek Kral Death Priest as well. He's another commander that will see more sacrifice the more players that there are to potentially sacrifice things. Like those are also really great when you have more players to play against. And it's just, I think a really refreshing thing for us to remember is that sometimes more opponents can be a thing that you take advantage of. This is a good thing. Like Karavek the Merciless, for example, he wants more opponents to be casting spells because then he'll throw more damage at them. When you see lurking predators, you want more opponents to be casting spells because then you get more lurking predators triggers to put creatures into play. Like, I, I don't know, like sitting down in a commander game, it can be really daunting to see multiple enemies, but these cards that scale so powerfully to multiple opponents can really turn that tide back in your favor. And that's what makes them so exciting. Yeah, I mean, and back to the to the cast triggers, but, you know, giving a little bit of a black... Black Legends, I should say, um, 
a little more credence. Combal, console of allocation, you know, you sure. tax people, you get these triggers whenever people are casting these non-creature spells. Uh, if you're playing against a Spellslinger deck, chances are uh, that's something that you they just can't let be on the battlefield. But having, you know, Combal in the command zone is a very, very powerful effect. I'm, I'm sure, Dana, your Adelie's the Cinderwind deck probably would not like to see a Combal across the table. I would not want to <laughs> see that at all. No, not at all. Yeah, there's there's a ton of different ways that you can take advantage of this. So many cards in this category that are, are really, really fun. The thing is, though, sometimes the cards that scale well to having multiple enemies Sometimes they go too far, and that is something we'll address in the fourth section, the fourth category. But before we get there, I think it's about time that we challenge some stats, guys. There's a whole bunch of data here on Adiatrek, but, you know, we don't always agree with it. Sometimes cards are seeing too much play, sometimes they're seeing too little play, so we like to do this segment challenging those statistics. Dana, how about you start us off this week? What's your challenge? Uh, my challenge was a user-submitted one by one of our patron supporters, Rodney C. Reagan, and Roddy submitted the enchantment Rolling Stones, which is in 20% of Arcades decks. And Roddy posited that it's overplayed. And I tend to agree looking at the card. Um, Rolling Stones is an enchantment, one in white. It says wall creatures may attack as though they weren't walls. And the reason Rodney writes it is overplayed is it doesn't function the way the commander does. It lets your walls attack, but it doesn't do anything with their power and toughness. So if your wall is a 0-100, it's attacking for zero. That doesn't like do the <laughs> inverse that Arcades does. So I think that's definitely a big deal. It doesn't really help you in the way you think it does. Um, also, if you look at Arcades on EDH Rec, six of the top 20 creatures that show up in Arcades decks aren't actually walls. And, and this card cares about creatures with the wall creature type. So it doesn't do any good anyway for quite a few creatures that are frequently played in Arcades decks. Um, you know, these days we have access to Assault Formation and High Alert as kind of a backup plan in Arcades deck anyway that does do what you want it to do. I just don't think you need to be running Rolling Stones in that deck. So I think that's a that's a good pick by Rodney, and uh, I'm on board. It's overplayed in Arcades or Strategist decks. Very nice. I love that pick. Uh, I'm going to go next here. The challenge that I'm going here is for the Volrath the Shapestealer Commander. He's the five mana seven five who can put minus one counters on opponents. Uh, sorry, on any creature uh, during combat, and then he can pay mana to become a copy of a creature that has a counter on it, but he remains a 7-5. This is a very fascinating shape-shifting commander, and a card that I think that folks need to play a whole lot more than they currently do in this deck is the card Arcane Lighthouse. This is a non-basic land that can tap for a colorless mana, or you can pay one and tap it, and until end of turn, creatures your opponents control lose Hexproof and Shroud, and can't have Hexproof or Shroud. Shockingly, this only shows up in 7% of Volrath decks, and this is just a land that I want to see in a whole lot more decks, just sort of period, because getting around the Shroud and Hexproof is so, so awesome, but especially for this commander, because he's got that ability that naturally puts minus one counters on things, and if you want to become a copy of a really nice target across the field, but it's got a pair of boots on it, it's nice to be able to get around those boots so that Volrath can become a copy of whatever he pleases. I think that's a good pick. I like it. Um, especially as prevalent as boots are. Um, they're in every deck, not every deck, but like <laughs> so many decks. I feel like I, I very rarely play a game where I don't see a pair of lightning grease and being able to deal with that problem is pretty important in that kind of deck. Yeah, your non-basic slots, I know that they can get a, a little cramped sometimes, but this is a very important non-basic for this commander to get around a potential downside of its own abilities. So just a fun one that I wanted to throw out there. 7% seems really, really aggressively low, I would say. All right, Matt, how about your challenge? So my challenge, it, it would qualify to be a Dana card, um, but it was used against us. Um, Olivia Gobert-Hicks, uh, member of the CAG, awesome person. She's come on to the stream, uh, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast, in case you're wondering <laughs> where this stream just happens to be. Uh, but she came on and she used a card that scales incredibly well for multiplayer games. Uh, this card is Crescendo of War. It is three and a white for an enchantment that says, at the beginning of each upkeep, put a strife counter on Crescendo of War. Attacking creatures get plus one, plus oh for each strife counter. Uh, then also blocking creatures you control get plus one, plus oh for each strife counter as well. So similar to how Seedborn Muse benefits and it generates Ooh. a ton of mana because there are so many upkeeps in multiplayer games, Crescendo of War is doing the exact same thing, only it's helping out with all of your you know combat steps. It's just a super, super powerful card. It is currently only played in 809 decks 
total. So that doesn't even register really on any commander's page or on any white card page even. So this is a card you're not gonna see very often. It's back from, I believe it was one of the original commander pre-con sets. But uh -huh. it's just a very, very powerful card. Uh, if you can land it early in just one turn cycle around, it's going to do kind of that tender shoot dryad type of effect where every upkeep, you're just going to get so much value that by the time you untap with this still in play, you already have a, a fairly powerful card on the battlefield. So only 809 decks, like I said, uh, I think it's just underplayed. If you want a card that's going to scale very, very well, uh, this is certainly a good one for any deck that loves the combat step. Now, importantly, this does give the same attacking benefit to your opponent's creatures, it but does. especially with like all of the goad effects running around in Commander nowadays, there are a lot of ways that you can specifically harness the power you're giving to your opponents here. So this is a very clever card. And Matt, I love that you picked a card that scales so well in our scaling episode. I, I was just very aware of what was going on, what we were talking about, so I made sure uh, I'm a professional in every aspect. But one thing to point out, too, is on the blocking creatures, uh, only the blocking creatures you control get the plus one, plus zero. So it does kind of incentivize mm -hmm. people not to attack into you because your blocking creatures are going to be able to, you know, block their attackers that are benefiting. So it might, you know, encourage people to attack uh, away from you. Yeah, this is a really crazy one. And you're right, Olivia used that to very hysterical effect against us. She did um, crush us with it. So probably should play great. it, you know, CAG member approved. <laughs> All right, let's get back into our main topic. The thing that we want to close out the show with is a discussion on the uh, the fourth category of cards that scale, because these are the cards that kind of take it too far. These are the cards that like they only scale so much of their focus is on the fact of them being played in a multiplayer format that by the time it gets around to like a one on one against a single opponent, these cards might be next to useless. They decrease in efficiency over the course of a longer amount of time. And that can be really, really dangerous if you do get down to a one on one game. The example that is going to immediately come to my mind are effects like Pramicon Sky Rampart and Mystic Barrier. When they enter the battlefield, you choose a direction left or right, and then players can only attack in that chosen direction. That is very interesting in a multiplayer game. But here's the problem. If you're down to a one-on-one -on -one against a single opponent and you choose left or right, that person is still to your left and to your right. So these cards are like basically useless there. So it's kind of a, a way that they've taken it a bit too far. This is so interesting in a multiplayer format that it's not good at all if the game gets down to the one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, I mean, there are entire mechanics that kind of don't, or that only scale, I should say, uh, undaunted spells where you benefit from having more opponents. Mm. Uh, they, you know, the cost reduction on those un undaunted spells doesn't really work that well. Uh, the same way, you know, if you're down to one-on-one -on -one and you have an assist spell in your hand, chances are that person's not going to be giving you any mana to cast a spell against them. So, I mean, and, and you even <laughs> right. think about the Battle Bond lands, uh, they are great, they are amazing lands, but that come into play untapped if you have more opponents. If you're one-on-one, -on -one, that that land is going to come into play tapped at that point. So it, it is weird just that there are entire mechanics that are so well, you know, they do very, very well when there are four players, but then, you know, the smaller the game gets, the worse, actually, the mechanic becomes. Yeah. Well, at least in the case of the Battle Bond lands, the lands still come into play. They just come into play tapped, and then mm -hmm. every turn after that, you can use them. Um, Blade of Selves, in particular the Myriad mechanic, but Blade of Selves is probably the most frequently yeah. played one, it just doesn't work if you're playing one enemy. <laughs> it doesn't make you any right. copies. So when it's down to 1v1, that card just gets shut off. Um, right. That, that's a, and it's still a fantastic card, and I still played in a couple of decks, but it scales very, very... Because of the way it scales, it scales great early and feels pretty bad sometimes late game. Yeah, very, very much. And there are some, like, Matt, you mentioned Undaunted Spells. I like the card Curtain's Call a lot, which is an Undaunted mm -hmm. Spell that kills two target creatures. Like, I feel like in a one-on-one, -on -one, that's still probably pretty decent, maybe a bit expensive, but, you know, two creatures. But you look at any of the other Undaunted Spells and you're just kind of like, yeah, I don't really want to cast Coastal Breach for six mana against one opponent to bounce some stuff. Like, there's, I just can do so much more in a bunch of different areas. Or play of the game, I'm a little hesitant on it because if it's down to a one-on-one, -on -one, this assist spell, my opponent's not going to assist me and it's eight mana to cast this thing. That's 
maybe good, but it's also pretty rough. So yeah, you really do have to balance that because Dana, like you mentioned, you play Blade of Selves and I think that you probably should, but it's the kind of thing that you need to be aware is going to be a very extremely dead card if the game goes on right. the way that you <laughs> want it to go where you're whittling enemies away over time. And that's, it's just so strange to have cards that kind of contradict uh, the mission of your deck, even though they provide so much benefit to the deck in a different uh, stage of the game. And, and, and that's just kind of what we want to look into with these cards here, because man, I want to like them, but some of them are a bit of a tall ask sometimes is all. Well, and, and you don't even need a specific mechanic for these types of effects to kind of scale eh, poorly <laughs> when there are fewer players around. Siphon Minded, I know, is a card that sees a, a healthy mm -hmm. amount of play. It's almost 12,000 decks. 5% of all black decks are playing Siphon Mind. The card is great when you're playing, you know, with four players at the table because uh, each player discards a card and then you draw a card for each card discarded that way. So if there's, you know, three cards discarded, you're, you're drawing three cards for four mana. But if it's one on one, if you're down to just, the, you know, the last dueling player, it's four mana for a draw one and discard one. That's not not really a great rate either. Right. And that's such a push and pull because I also love that card. It's a black spell that I don't have to pay life to draw cards. That's almost unheard of. I'm sure that Dana's mind is being blown over this because <laughs> he loves paying life to draw cards. He almost wants to pay life even if he didn't have to draw cards. That's right. just so much of a hipster he is. But this is a spell that offers a different solution. But that still has a strange downside and yet also something that you can potentially take advantage of. But yeah, down to one on one. It's uh, pretty risky there. Very, very risky indeed. Um, I think the goad mechanic is also potentially one that we can talk about here in this category because like goading one player to make them attack you that has uses but man disrupt decorum feels a whole lot better when i have three enemies instead of just one i mean disrupt decorum might be like a favorite of the edh retcast just because of how versatile it is how good mm -hmm. it is but you are right like if you goad one person it's it, the the effect has definitely lost some of its luster at that point yeah, very, very much. Uh, you know, Manifold Insights is a card that I, early on in the in the podcast, Matt recommended to me to try in my Talran deck. And the first time I cast it felt fantastic getting three cards um, uh, for, for three mana. Didn't feel so good the next couple of times I cast it against one opponent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that might feel so, weird. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, like, like there, those in, in those situations are, are such a crapshoot. Maybe you know it's one of those cards where, like, if the first time you cast it or the first ten times you cast them in a deck, you happen to always hit, you know, a four-player pod, then maybe that mentally changes your perception, or maybe you play in a meta where it's very combo-centric and there's almost always either four players in the game or someone has one because everyone dies simultaneously. Maybe these things don't become issues then. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not everybody. And there's a lot of places where they really do become issues. You know, it, it's easy to, to kind of use hyperbole and call a card uncastable. Uh, Decimate is literally uncastable if you don't have four valid targets. <laughs> Destroy yeah. target, creature, land, which there's usually those. But artifact and enchantment... You know, plenty of times you'll have four targets, but I've myself have held a decimate in hand and been unable to cast it because I was down to one opponent who either didn't have an artifact or enchantment out. Like that does actually happen sometimes. Oh, and, and there are cards that just actively get bad or like you said, uncastable when there aren't enough players. Mm -hmm. uh, Cruel Entertainment is a card that is hilarious yeah. and super fun to watch happen. But for seven mana, if you're down to one player, or one opponent, I should say, uh, you you don't cast it. Uh, in Cruel Entertainment, it's kind of an obscure card, but it's one of those pre-con cards where you pay seven mana, you choose two different players, and then the first player controls the second player's turn, and then the second player controls the first player's turn. So you're, you're having people swap, you know, who's controlling who. They're, you're kind of having two people mind-slaver each other, which is hilarious to watch. Maybe not mm -hmm. over webcam. Don't play this over webcam. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's so crazy that it's it's a fun card. But if you're down to one opponent, you do not want to cast this. Right, because then you're giving, like, you get first dibs on their turn, but they also get dibs on your turn, and that's really, really dicey. And, and beyond that, too, an aspect of multiplayer games that some people are more comfortable with than others, but your ability to politic disappears 100% when you are down to a one-on-one. -on -one. So Cruel Entertainment can provide you opportunities to politic with other players. The card Scheming Symmetry, a one-mana tutor that gives you and another target opponent a card on top of your deck at your 
choice. That can allow you opportunities to politic with other players. But once you're down to one-on-one, -on -one, I never want to cast these. Like I'm handing my opponents the very tools that they will use to destroy me. And it is so much of a risk that it makes me doubt wanting to put those cards into the deck in the first place. Because if I get stuck with them in hand, I, I just don't like having cards that are not only dead, but if I cast them, they'll actively work against me, especially when it gives that much unpredictability to my opponents. And yet I also still kind of want to politic a little bit. Like I, I like these cards that, uh, you know, let us maneuver a bit around other players like that can be really, really fun. It's just that sometimes they really end up shooting you in the foot, too. Well, let's let's wrap this little chat up. Uh, we, we've talked about a, a lot about cards that scale <laughs> that don't scale. Um, so let's let's send her home. Do you guys have any some last thoughts to, to send our listeners out to? Yeah, for, for me, a lot of the cards, especially that fall into the latter two categories, especially they, they come from pre-cons a lot. <laughs> like that's where Wizard seems to design around a lot of the multiplayer matters sort of environment. And that's where you can find a lot of those cards that care too much about the fact of it being multiplayer. And it, it can be a kind of dangerous waters to, to wade into there because sometimes you do get the effects like Duelist Heritage, which Oh my goodness, it's so good, even if it's just with you or if you want to give other people double strike, like that's really interesting multiplayer. Oh, that's so cool. You can take advantage of the multiple opponents, but then also sometimes you get the mystic barriers, which are complete duds against a single opponent. So watch out for these cards that scale. I would say most when you're evaluating cards from pre-cons, because that's where it gets, I think, the most dicey, but still it's a lot of fun if you can take advantage of it. Yeah, in that last category, especially, I would say, you know, we, we talked about the problems with a lot of those cards. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't run them. Des <laughs> I, I mentioned getting burned by Decimate before. I still play Decimate. Like it's still right. a fantastic card, and the amount of times it generates, you know, twenty five mana worth of value for a four mana spell definitely offsets that occasional situation when it's it's uncastable. Um, so. The, the criticism is, is just us noting the problems with the cards. Some of them are still very, very playable and very, very good. So, so don't read too much into us pointing out some of these flaws. <laughs> right. When we get to play in person again, I definitely want to cast Cruel Entertainment on you and on Matt. <laughs> I mean, as, if you're doing it in person, like chances are like Dane and I can just get up and like take your deck and, and throw it across. The, we're not going to throw it across. It, that, it'll that'd, be, that'd be too mean. It'll be a party oh, in the no. USA, Joey. It will Stop. be a party in the USA. No, oh, it. Oh man, we we gotta we gotta close this down. But anyway, this was just a fun chance to take a look at the different ways that you can value cards. You know, when you're looking at them, are these cards that are helpful in universal scenarios? Are these cards that are going to help me endure? You know, last a long game? Or are these cards that are going to deal damage to one opponent, to multiple opponents? Can I manage to deal more damage to Matt because I have three opponents instead of just one? That type of thing. And um, that's just a whole lot of fun to evaluate. And I'm gonna shut this down before we can have any more Miley Cyrus jokes going on. Anyway, with that, I think what we need to do is call this to a close. Uh, guys, for all of our listeners, if they want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Well, you can find me on the Twitter. I'll be talking about when you know, we had the time of our lives there. Uh, Mathemus55, <laughs> M-A-T-H, I-M-U-S-5-5. Uh, don't forget twitch.tv slash EDHRecast. We are streaming Wednesday evenings. Uh, we have some amazing guests coming up. October 7th, we have Ellie of the Veil. She's amazing. Mm. She writes all sorts of interesting articles, uh, streams herself, so it'll be a good time to tune in as well. Uh, Twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. Having all the fun games. It, it's so much fun. Thank you guys for just doing that. And thank you to all the people who tune in and, and really make those games a fun, fun, fun evening. Yeah, awesome guests and awesome folks in chat. It's a really great time. And Dana, where can folks find you? You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. You can read my articles a couple times a month on EDH Rec. And you can find all of us on patreon.com slash EDH Reccast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast on both Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question or a keen insight to EDH Rec's data, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks again to Josh LeQuay and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, our thanks to our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or, of course, by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC, and that shows your support for the show. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>